Morning, church family. Welcome to Desert Hills Baptist Church in our 845 service. I'm excited about getting into the message this morning as we continue our study in the book of Ephesians, the study called Transformational Church. And uh, thank you for coming. I know most of the young people have started school by now, and most of you are back into the routine. And some of you look very tired this morning, so I will be uh, wise and being expeditious this morning in my communication. As long as everybody's following along, if I start to see people not off here in the next half hour or so, I have to start all over, okay? So stay with me this morning. I won't start all over. Uh, trust me, I won't do that. But Ephesians chapter 4 this morning, I was so excited about the message this morning, I felt like, uh, uh, you know, that runner that is really famous from Jamaica, Usain Bolt. And uh, as I thought about the message and went over it for the eighth or ninth time this morning, I was uh, feeling like I was the guy at the starting gates and I was ready to sprint off. And I don't like starting that way because if I do, by the time I'm done, I feel like I'm the guy with uh, uh, the teenager that's slovenly walking across the street while cars are honking at them. You know what I mean? I, I don't want to end that way, all right? So I'm going to try to pace myself this morning. But every one of us wants to be effective in what we do. In fact, in, in his book, Effective Leadership, John Maxwell gives these, among other qualities, uh, that help someone to be an effective leader. He says, number one, to be an effective leader, you have to have the ability to get along with others. And sometimes that means you, you swallow uh, what you, that means. Uh, you wait until a little later to, uh, to address an issue. Uh, uh, he goes on to say, you need to learn to see what you need to see in others. Now, some people, as you're a leader, you realize that uh, some people have some good qualities that uh, can benefit, and some people have some qualities that maybe you wouldn't have that you may find uh, uh, not a part of your personality, but everyone is special in some way. And so you learn to see what you need to see in others, and then uh, you need to be worth following. Be worth following. If you're going to be an effective leader, uh, you tell people to show up at 7 o'clock, you better show up five minutes to 7 o'clock or 10 minutes to 7 o'clock. Early is on time and on time is late. You need to set a good example. If you tell people to uh, turn in their schedules, you need to do that. If you tell people to do X, Y, and Z, you need to be able to follow through in those ways. You need to be a leader worth following. You need to learn to, how to properly motivate people. You need to respect others' position and their person. And then you need to look at the people on your team and try to determine how you can get them to work together as a team. As a team. Now, if everybody's doing their own thing, you're never going to be an effective team. But ever, if everybody buys into a mission and a vision, and they're all fulfilling their role in that team, then you can see some wonderful things happen. Now, uh, we understand that those are some qualities to effective leadership. Now, if you research and find out how to be an effective communicator, you'll come up with several qualities like this. Construct an effective message. In other words, adapt it to your medium. I remember uh, several years ago when, when COVID was just starting up as a thing, uh, we uh, uh, shut down services here for a month. And uh, when we went back to a gathering, we, we met in the parking lot. Now, has anybody ever preached in a parking lot before? Anybody ever preached in a parking lot? Not my favorite way uh, to, to communicate. 
In fact, I'm preaching and all of a sudden, uh, you know, people have their air conditioners on and the, the later model cars have that condenser that kicks in and it's really loud. And then another later model car does the same thing. And then I feel like I can't hear myself. And if I can't hear myself, people can't hear me. And, and it just I just wanted to get done real quickly. I think we had a possum run through the parking lot while I'm preaching. And, I mean, just all kinds of different things were happening while as cars would honk as a as a, instead of saying amen eh, 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 eh. that took a little getting used to instead of raising hands during the worship eh, 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 eh. it was different so I had to adapt to the medium you need to uh, have a clear structure. You need to be clear and concise. You need to stay on track. And I love this one. Uh, for those of you that say I preach too long, the, this article said, take your time. Take your time. Take your time. What else uh, helps in effective uh, communication? Be mindful of the context. Noise, environment, timing, the listener's background, potential cultural differences. Listen to your listener. If you're having a communication with somebody individually, uh, don't just seek to uh, be understood. Seek to understand. Make sure you're listening as well as communicating. Don't interrupt. Focus. Show interest in the needs and the difficulties. Don't assume. Sometimes when you're communicating, you assume things about someone because of maybe their background or where they grew up or their situation. Don't assume. And then another thing, and for some of us that wear sometimes our reactions on our, our sleeves, watch your nonverbal communication. You know the old expression that eyes are a window to the soul? Sometimes when you're communicating with somebody, you can really tell when they dislike what you're saying. Their eyes tell it all. Huh? <laughs> you know, I mean, watch your nonverbal communication. I, I was researching also how to be an effective parent. I found one article. It said one thing it takes to be an effective parent. I'm like, whoa, what is this one thing? I've been doing this for a long time, and I don't even know where to begin sometimes. I mean, every kid is different, and culture changes, and the things that influence them change. And man, the hardest thing I've ever done is parenting. Man, I would trade sitting on a bed of nails, maybe sometimes, for parenting. I mean, seriously, it's hard sometimes. Am I, am I being, like, dismal and depressive this morning or what? It's truth. It's, it's difficult. But this one article said the key to effective parenting is being vulnerable. And they went on to describe how the, the basis of any relationship is vulnerability and your children need to see that you don't have all the answers. You're trying to, uh, to work along with them as you're uh, leading them in the right direction and preparing them for the future and preparing them to be good citizens and good Christians and so on. And I, I thought that's interesting. The one quality they say for effective parenting is vulnerability. Now, considering the context in which we're in this morning, the context of the church, what is the key to effective ministry? What is the key to effective ministry? Now, Paul here in our text transitions from explaining the glories that accompany the Christian life in chapters 1 through 3 to how to apply those truths to our everyday life in chapters 4 through 6. 
He moves from Christian doctrine to Christian duty, from biblical creed to biblical conduct, from the believer's providential wealth to the believer's practical walk, from exposition of the truth to the exhortation on how to live it out. And as he does, he gives the church, if you will, the silver bullet to effective ministry, and it's wrapped up as well in one word, unity. Unity. It's wrapped up in the word we know as unity. Unity is a beautiful thing to behold. I'm grateful. Uh, somebody said uh, to me, Pastor, I see we're preaching on unity today. What's going on? <laughs> now, as far as I know, nothing's going on. Do you know something I don't know? <laughs> as far as I know, nothing's going on. In fact, really, I mean, our church is, is blessed to be in, in wonderful unity. And for 99% for of the time over the 15 years almost that we've been in existence, we've had a wonderful time keeping unity. And the Bible says this about unity. Uh, oh, how good and pleasant. Behold, how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Truly, unity is an extremely good and extremely pleasant thing to see in a group of people like a church. And as we look at the text this morning, we see Paul giving a summons to unity. A summons to unity. Now, Ephesians, along with Colossians and Philippians and Philemon, are known as the pastoral epistles, or excuse me, the prison epistles. The prison epistles. And the reason why they're called the prison epistles is Paul wrote these books while he was in prison. In fact, it says that in verse 1. It says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. So he addresses the fact that while he's giving this communication, this letter, this epistle to the Ephesians, he's in prison. Falsely accused by the Jews, we find his story in Acts. He appeals to Caesar, and as he appeals to Caesar, he ends up, first of all, under house arrest in Rome, and then he ends up in the Mamertine prison before he's executed, most people believe, by relieving himself from his head, his body from his head. But this book, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, were written while he was in prison. And, and here while he was there, he chose to continue on. He chose to continue to be productive. He chose to continue to love Jesus. He chose to continue to uh, seek uh, God with all of his heart. He continued on in spite of being in prison. And here's what he writes. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, he refers back to everything that he's already said by using the word, therefore, and then he wants the Ephesians to know that because of what Jesus has done for them, because Jesus has given them forgiveness, as we've explained in chapter 1, adoption, chapter 1, redemption, chapter 1, the Holy Spirit, chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, he's made them alive, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, he's given them the blessings of the church, chapters 2 and 3, and because of all the things they have, there's something they must do. And here's what he writes. He says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you, beseech you. He's urging them. He's imploring them. He's earnestly asking them. He's summoning them to walk worthy of the vocation wherewith they were called. Now, literally, to behave properly or to exemplify the salvation 
that each of them have been given. In other words, he's telling them to live up to the fact that they have been born again. Now, it's interesting the word that's used here, worthy, is derived from the Greek word axios, which means to be of equal weight. Now, we have a, a rudimentary scale here this morning that's up on the platform. Everybody can kind of see this. We ordered one from Amazon, a little one, and, and uh, it was supposed to work. You know, you put weight on one side, put weight on the other side. If it's the same weight, it balances out as a scale, and, and the scale they ordered from Amazon didn't move. It just looked there. It looked like a scale. So we had one of these at, upstairs that we use for vacation Bible school. And now in a scale, if you have something of equal weight on one side and something of equal weight on the other side, the scale is going to balance out if the scale is true. Now in the Bible times, sometimes the, uh, uh, the people that bought goods would cook the weights. They would want a little bit more wheat or barley, and so they would uh, uh, make uh, something that was supposed to be one pound, really a pound and a half, and they would use that as a weight, so their pound and a half would be equal to a pound and a half of grain, although they said they were buying only a pound. They were cheating. And so that's why the Bible says in Proverbs that false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is His delight. But here's what we understand in salvation. Our salvation, everything that God has given us, forgiveness, redemption, adoption, all of those things, uh, the Holy Spirit, every one of the blessings, all the blessings that we have because we're in Christ Jesus, everything that we have in Christ Jesus, we're to live up to. We're to live like we have been adopted, we're to live like we have been forgiven. We're to live like we have been redeemed. We're to live like we have been given the Holy Spirit. And you see, our salvation is to be of equal weight. Every blessing that we have in Christ Jesus, everything that God has bestowed on us because we've received God's gift of eternal life by receiving Jesus as the payment of our sins and the Lord of our life, all the blessings of Christianity, our salvation is to be emblematic of everything that we have received. It's to be of equal weight. That's what Paul is saying. That's how we are too. Well, let me see here. My balance is off, all right? <laughs> That's how we're to walk worthy of the vocation wherewith we're called. Now, as we think of the context of all that's been said in previous chapters, there it goes! God is using Paul to tell the church to live lives equal to all the blessings that they've been given as described in chapters 1 through 3. Now, chapter 1 says, we're blessed with all spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 4 says that we're chosen. Chapter 1 and verse 4 says that we're made holy and without blame. Chapter 1 and verse 5 says that we're adopted. We're literally adopted into God's family. Chapter 1 and verse 6 says we're accepted. It's going to go some more. Chapter 1 and verse 7 says we're redeemed. Chapter 1 and verse 7 says we're forgiven. Chapter 1 verses 11 and 12 says we're given an inheritance. Chapter 1 and verses 12 and 13 and 14 says that we're given the Holy Spirit. We are to live lives equal in weight that bear out the understanding of the blessings that we have received. Now, as a part of this idea of walking worthy of our salvation, we understand there's this thing of unity because that's what comes next in the context. 
So as this passage continues to explain unity, we understand that unity is based on an understanding of everything that we already have in Christ Jesus. And we are to walk like Jesus, or we're to walk of equal weight to the truth that we have received of him. And so Paul gives a summons. He says, I beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation, the salvation that you have been given. And then next we see not only a summons, but we see the substance of unity. Now, what does unity look like? It's described in verse 2. With all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. Now, unity has a substance. It's made up, first of all, of lowliness and meekness, or we would say in our modern vernacular, humility and gentleness. Now, humility or lowliness was not something that was admired in the ancient Greek world. In fact, it was despised and it was viewed like a slave-like quality. The people that were admired were those who appeared to be self-sufficient, self-confident, those that appeared to be self-made, those who didn't need anything from anybody but were the ones that everybody else needed. Those are the people that were admired in the modern Greco-Roman world. Humility is not thinking too much of oneself. It's not thinking too little of oneself. It's just not thinking of oneself. Now, it's hard with modern-day social media for some people to be humble. Look at what I did. 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 Look what I did. Look what I did. Look at I did. And some people are doing that to, uh, so the family can engage, so family can see, so family can see images and so on. But some people are like, look at me. <laughs> and I think we have to be careful in our modern era uh, to understand that that doesn't always promote a humble spirit. Now, God uses Paul here to encourage the Ephesian believers also to demonstrate not only lowliness and humility, he couples it with meekness. Now, meekness or gentleness is not weakness, but it's strength under control. Meekness is the ability to give grace when others would give retaliation. Meekness is the ability to stand for the truth and to disagree but not to be sinfully disagreeable. Did you get that? Now, if you're the person on social media that's always looking to stir a pot and start a fight, you probably don't exemplify meekness. Now, the Bible even says of Jesus that he was gentle and meek. Here's what the Bible says. Jesus, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. Now, unity isn't, isn't present if we're constantly and pridefully trying to get our way. Do you understand that? If you're always having to be right, if you're always trying to get your way, if you're always trying to be at the top of the heap, if you will, you're always going to cause problems. In fact, Proverbs says it this way, only by pride cometh contention. At the root of every argument, at the root of every conflict, at the root of every work-related incident, at the root of every domestic violent situation is pride. And you won't find these things when people are seeking to live out lowliness and meekness. 
James puts it this way in his book, uh, James chapter 4, verse 1. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence, even of your own lusts, that war in your members. I just got to say what I got to say. I got to give them a piece of my mind. I got to tell them how I feel because they need to hear how I feel just like this, how I feel it. Now, if you're constantly in that mode, let me just say this, you're not living up to your salvation. God hates those that sow disunity. Here's what the Bible says in Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 6 and verse 16. These six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that be swift in running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies. And what's the last one? He that soweth discord among the brethren. God hates those that sow disunity. Doesn't like it one bit. Doesn't like it not even in the slightest. Here's God's plan even for the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 25. That there be no schism or tearing apart in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't things at times that come up in the church that you have to contend about. I'm not saying that there aren't things that you will, will not agree upon. I'm not saying that that's how it always is in a church. But our mode, our mode of operation should not be to tear apart. Our mode of operation it should not be to get our pound of flesh. Our mode of operation shouldn't be always to give someone a piece of our mind and make them feel like we're feeling in the moment. If that's how we're living, we're not living out lowliness and meekness. Paul also gives two other qualities that make up the substance of unity. Notice what he says, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. Now, long-sufferingness has the idea of being patient in pain or circumstances, while forbearing one another in love has the idea of being patient with people who are unpleasant or difficult. Now, men and women have uh, uniquenesses that, uh, that often stand out. And in this area here with long-sufferingness and forbearing one another in love, men are a little different and, than women. Now, let me say this. Men, how many of you men have ever run out of gas in your car? How many of you men have ever run out of gas in your car? How many of you have never run out of gas in your car? All right, how many of you, after you ran out of gas in your car, that one time you've never, never ran out of gas in your car again? All right, this almost the same many hands. You know what I learned about my wife and probably her sister and probably some of the ladies that are in here this morning? Now, I'm not an accusatory this morning. I get into my wife's vehicle, and almost every time I get into that vehicle, it's on empty. And the first thing I think is, we have money. <laughs> you know, we, we got plenty of money to pay for gas. I know gas is expensive, but we got enough money to pay for gas. But almost every time I get into that car, it's almost on empty. And I'll say, well, honey, your, your, your light's on. She, she'll tell me to the exact tenth of the mile how long she can drive. 
while it says the car is on empty. How many of you fellows know what I'm talking about? Anybody, how many of you are brave enough to say it, all right? Now, if I ran out of gas today, I would not be happy in those circumstances. I would, I would run out of gas, I'd realize I'm out of gas, I'd get out of the car, I'd kick the wheels of the car, I'd curse the car. No, I wouldn't curse, I would say, stupid car, stupid Honda, stupid manufacturer, stupid tires, stupid gas, stupid QT, stupid gas can, stupid everything. That's how I would be as a man. How many of you understand what I'm saying? That, I, I would be not patient in those circumstances. The car didn't do anything to me. I was dumb and I didn't fill it up. It's my fault. But I would not be patient in those circumstances. Now, if my wife ran out of gas, it wouldn't affect her like that at all. All she would do is call me. <laughs> now, but if a guy gets crossed and he has a little, little tissel with a buddy, you know, they apologize and they're, they're good. I mean, they move on. It's like it never happened. I had a neighbor. His name was Kelly. We would fight almost every single day when we were growing up. Every single day. Uh, he'd start something. I'd finish something. His mom would come over and tell my mom, Adam beat up Kelly again. And my mom would say, oh, they're just going to be friends later on today. He'd come over. He'd apologize to me. And later on that evening, we were playing. Every single day. That's just how you are as guys. But when my sister would fight with my sister, oh man, there'd be tension in the house for weeks. I mean, and they still probably remember every one of those offenses and have them marked down on some chart somewhere. Men and women are different that way. It's not a, a total generality that fits everybody, but some of you exactly know what I'm talking about. But here's what the Bible says. Both long-sufferingness and forbearing one another in love because we love God and others, these things help to promote unity. Now, most of us are familiar with the Apostle Peter. Peter, the one who cut off Malchus's ear. Peter, uh, who was amongst the son of Baragines, the, uh, uh, the sons of thunder, the, you know, the guys that were at the transfiguration. Peter, who was one of Jesus' right-hand guys. But God had to change Peter from a proud, a rough, and impatient, and impetuous, quick-tempered man to a man who lived out his salvation and a man who lived up to his salvation. In fact, here's what God used Peter to write later on after he was a Christian for many years. First Peter chapter 1, he says, Seeing you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that you love one another with a pure heart fervently. God changed Peter in that way. Secondly, 1 Peter chapter 3, finally be of all of one mind, having compassion one of another, love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous, not rendering evil for evil or rallying for rallying, but contrawise, knowing that you are there unto call, that you should inherit a blessing. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. Peter's telling everybody, hey, live up to your salvation. Live like you've been saved. 
saved. Live differently. And then we see in chapter 4, he says, And above all things, have fervent charity or love among yourselves, for charity shall cover a multitude of sins. Now, God changed Peter, and let me say this, he wants to change us through his spirit, through lowliness and meekness, through long-suffering, through forbearing one another in love. Uh, this, these things are not to be viewed as an external checklist that we, we mark off whether or not we're doing or not. These things are rather to be attitudes of the heart that has been yielded to the Spirit of God. Now, let me say this. Galatians chapter 5 says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And, and here's what it goes on to say. Uh, uh, this, it says, and they, they that are in the flesh live after the flesh. They that are in the Spirit live after the Spirit. And, and what I want to say to you this morning sorry, I was thinking of my scale here for just a second, is if we're not in balance this morning, let me see if I can get this to work. If we're not in balance, everybody's going to know it. Why? Because if we're not walking in the Spirit, this is how our life is going to be. Love's not going to come out. Joy is not going to come out. Peace isn't going to come out. Temperance isn't going to come out. Self-control is not going to come out. Why? Because we're not living with the Spirit controlling us and living out the blessings of our Christianity. And every one of these things we see in Ephesians chapter 4 are also things that we see in Galatians chapter 5, but oftentimes our lives are like this. We're not living up to our Christianity. So we see one last thing this morning, the source of our unity. Now, as we look at the next few verses, we understand that unity is to be rooted in the personage of the Godhead. Now, each of the seven unities mentioned in verses 4 through 6 are attached to a person in the Godhead or the Trinity. Now, here's what it says. There is one body, one spirit, even as you are called, one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Now, notice, first of all, the Holy Spirit brings unity. There is one body and one spirit. The Holy Spirit baptizes and places every believer in the body of Jesus Christ. Here's what Corinthians says about this. For by uh, one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drag into one Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit uh, initiates us, He infiltrates us, He coordinates us, He orchestrates us, and empowers believers as representatives of Jesus Christ to the world. He gives us oneness and unity because we all have the same Spirit indwelling us. Now, that is why you can meet someone for the first time halfway around the world, and you can understand that person is a brother or sister, and you can have commonality because every believer is a part of the same familial organization the body of Christ, the church. Now, not only does the Spirit bring unity, but Jesus Christ also brings unity. Now, notice what it says. Even as you are called, in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. Now, there is no doubt that the one Lord being spoken of in verse 5 is Jesus Christ himself. 
In fact, here's what it says of Jesus in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. But to us there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we are in him. And notice what it says. And one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. I like how the book of Philippians describes this. It says, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of the things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, as our one Lord, Jesus creates one faith, because he is the object and the foundation of our faith, and because of our one faith, we have participated in one baptism, baptized into the body of Jesus Christ, because we believed on the name of Jesus Christ and Jesus alone, and because we believed on Jesus Christ, we have one hope of our calling. We are going to heaven someday, and, and because of that decision, the certainty of that decision is so secure that Paul in Ephesians 2 and Ephesians chapter 1 says that we're seated right now in heavenly places in Christ Jesus because because of that decision and then we see God the Father helps to bring unity one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all now every believer shares the same parent we all have the same father now we can be as different as night and day I was talking to my brother here this week and I found out that he grew up in Hungary and uh, uh, had his childhood there in Hungary and moved here to the United States. And, and I mean, he's from another part of the world, like literally halfway around the world. But you know what? As we sat there and talked and as we related to one another, he told me about his salvation experience. He told me how he came to faith. Uh, and a, a gospel witness came to him when he was in a bad time in his life. And, and his life changed. And I, I looked down at him and he looks up over here at me because I'm on the stage. And you know what? We're brothers. We don't necessarily look alike, although we are kind of dark, both of us. But you know what? We're brothers because we have the same commonality of Jesus Christ and the same Father, God the Father. Now, as we think of the Trinity, understanding that God is constantly in unity as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, co-equal, co-powerful, co-eternal, should help us to understand that God's intent is for believers to be in unity. The Trinity is in unity, they say, and there is unity in the Trinity, and this unity in the Trinity is eternal and unbreakable. Well, let me ask you this question. Why are there so many problems then in Christian churches? If believers are to be emblematic of the union that is in the Trinity and the unity that's in the Trinity, why is there so many problems in Christian churches? Why are there so many problems in Christian homes? Why are there so many problems amongst Christians in relationships? Now remember, unity is not always believing and agreeing about all things. That is unanimity. Unity is being humble and meek and long-suffering and forbearing one another in love even when we don't agree about things. And the Godhead teaches us that God's desire is for us as Christians to walk worthy of the vocation wherewith we are called. We are to walk in balance of the salvation that we have been given.
And then I was wrong, and there's one last thing. We see the Spirit's work towards helping Christians to be in unity. Now, Paul is so insistent on believers preserving unity. Remember, all these people are from different backgrounds. Uh, uh, you had former Jews that became Christians, former Gentiles that became Christians. You had rich, you had poor, you had people that were slaves, uh, you had people that uh, were free. They all had different tastes. They all had different customs. They all had different habits. They all had different foods they enjoyed. They all had different entertainments. They were all different. Now, the natural thing to happen in a, in a group of people like this from all these different backgrounds would be disunity. But here's what Paul said. His exhortation was to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, the root word for the English word endeavoring has the idea of making haste or giving absolutely everything you have to preserve unity. Now, notice that unity isn't possible outside of the Spirit indwelling us and filling us. Notice what it says, endeavoring to keep the unity of the what? The Spirit. And, and notice it says that in salvation we have been given the bond of peace. Literally a connection, a sinew like a tendon, a chain that connects us to peace. Not only peace with God, but being a Christian gives us the ability to have peace with others with other believers, with difficult people, with people that are sometimes uh, hard to be around, with people that have habits that annoy us, with people that say things that are against our composition. Yes, even with those, the Spirit helps us to have a connection to peace. Here's what Paul writes to the Romans about peace. He says, Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. And then he kind of wraps uh, what he said in Ephesians chapter 4, similar to what he says here in Ephes or or Romans chapter 12. He says, As much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Literally, he says, with everything that you have, try to make peace. With everything that you have, there might be some of us in here that are often looking for a fight. Somebody says something to me, I'm going to show them. I'm going to give them a piece of my mind. If my wife or my husband says that to me one more time, I'm going to tell him where to go. He could go back to his mother's. He might say, she treats me better. <laughs> As much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Notice Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Now, when any Jewish person would give the greeting shalom, the Hebrew word, it, it means peace be upon you. But it didn't simply mean the absence of problems. They weren't just well-wishing somebody not to have problems. Peace to the Jewish brethren had the idea of wholeness or completeness. So when Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, 
uh, he's not simply talking about someone who pursues the absence of conflict, but more importantly, he's talking about one who preserves and pursues wholeness or well-being in their lives and in the lives of others. Now, a peacemaker is one who's willing to make trouble if there will be wholeness of life, if there will be peace. And if our Christianity is going to be in equal weight to the blessings we have received, we need to allow the Holy Spirit to fill us and control us till we make, till we make haste to be connected to peace and we live up to our salvation. So let me ask you this morning. Are you endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace? Now, our church is on the precipice of being 15 years old. Now, if our church was a teenager, we would still be battling acne. We would still be uh, uh, trying to figure out our identity as far as, you know, who Christ has made us to be and, and how, uh, what I'm going to do at the uh, end of my life and how am I going to do it and how am I going to get there and all those things. If our church was a teenager, that's where we would be. So we're still young relatively. But you know what? One of the things that God has done a good job of in our church, and I believe it's because God has given us a wonderful group of people who respond to the truth of the Word of God, is God has, for the most part, kept us as a church that has been in unity. We've not been perfect, but for the most part, we've been in unity. We've not always agreed about everything, but you know what? We've been in unity. And that's something that God has to do in the life of every believer. And as it's present in every believer, it can be present in the corporate sense. He's given us a witness. He's given us influence. He's given us fruit. He is uh, uh, brought and is bringing laborers. But the question I have for you this morning is, what will we do to preserve unity? What will we do to preserve unity? How about what will we do to preserve unity in our homes? What will we do to preserve unity in the place that we work? What will we do to preserve unity amongst our extended family relationships? How are we living out our Christianity?